You can be seated. Good morning. Very good to see each of you. Glad to be back uh, from a week of vacation and hope that you and your family enjoyed a, a wonderful time uh, on Independence Day and uh, celebrating what we have in, uh, in our country. I appreciate Tim Montgomery for preaching for me last week in my absence. I, I heard his message uh, online as we were driving back, and he did an outstanding job covering the topic of patience. And so if you weren't here, you can find that on the, on the website, and I know you'll be blessed and encouraged by it. We want to continue to pray for, for him and all the students and the leaders who are at camp this week, and uh, they'll be returning on Tuesday. And as you know, when, uh, when students get away and they have uh, time in the Word and they have time together and day after day that the, that the Lord can just really work and move in their hearts, and we're praying uh, specifically that that will happen uh, for this uh, group of young people as they are at uh, Cedarmore, uh, Kentucky at camp until Tuesday. Also, as you, as you pray this morning, I, I hope that you've been praying for, for the boys in Thailand. Have you heard about that, the story there of, of the boys that have been uh, trapped in a cave and they've had to use uh, uh, scuba divers to rescue them? And I read this morning before the service that four of the 12 have been rescued uh, today. And so be praying. That's a very dangerous operation. I know there's a lot of families and certainly the eyes of the world really on them right now, but uh, be praying for, for them as well. Well, today we continue in our summer series, Filled to Overflow. And we have been considering the, the descriptions in Galatians 5 on the fruit of the Spirit. And I'll invite your attention there, and we'll read uh, from uh, Galatians 5 in just a couple of minutes. Filled to Overflow. Have you ever had a container that overflowed? You ever had a container that, that maybe broke and, and spilled out? I, I, can, I can think of a couple of times. One time I was. Uh, I was in, uh, actually traveled to St. Louis before we lived here and attended a conference that was at the old Millennium Hotel, if you remember where that's located, and uh, uh, somehow I managed to knock a bottle of cologne onto the bathroom tile floor that was in a glass bottle. I don't even know why I was traveling with it, but I did, and so it broke, and I, I mean, you could just smell all of this cologne. How do you describe the smell of, a, of men's cologne? You know, the, what do they say, like a, a woody, earthy smell, you know, the... Uh, uh, you know, the, the moss on a tree, the scum on a pond. I don't know. They have all these different ways of describing what it's like. Well, you could smell it from the hallway. As I was getting off the elevator, I knew exactly where my room was that week. And it happened at the beginning as I was unpacking my stuff. Had another occasion where a very unfortunate experience where we had uh, just left the grocery store and had a gallon of milk that was uh, behind the driver's seat somehow shifted around and got pinched somehow, and about two-thirds of that milk uh, spilled out uh, into our, the carpet and the padding of the van. In fact, I was in there trying to figure out where all it went as we stopped and went forward and up and down hills, and I found it all the way under the accelerator and all the way to the back. And I mean, I just had to pull out carpet and padding, and some of it had to be thrown away. And I, it's, it's taught me this lesson. When I'm in the grocery store and they say, would you like your milk in a bag? I don't even have to think. I just, yes, please, can you put it in a couple of plastic bags, right? I mean, we're just so careful. But you know what it's like when you have something that overflows. Think about that in the context of your own life. What overflows from you? What would others say that when they encounter you at home or at work, in the community, when they encounter you, what is overflowing from your life? Because that's really what the fruit of the Spirit are all about. 
It's about being filled by the Spirit so that the overflow of what we've been filled with can bless and reach and touch the lives of those who are around us. We've been looking at the, uh, at the fruit of the Spirit all summer, and, and uh, Galatians 5 is really a, a description of one fruit. It's nine descriptions of one fruit. It's not nine fruits of the Spirit that we pick and choose and identify, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a multitude of descriptions that tell us this is what it looks like when the Holy Spirit resides within you, what you are filled with, what you are to yield to and to submit to and to mature in so that this fruit is produced. We've looked at John 15 where Jesus says that he's the vine and we are the branches that bear fruit. And it's as if Paul is picking up on that same analogy, that same metaphor, if you will, and he's bringing it forward with this description. And there's even a contrast. We've looked at this over the last few weeks. Verse 19 of Galatians 5 begins to speak of the works of the flesh. And there's this contrast of, of what our fleshly nature is like and now what this new nature, what this spiritual nature is to produce. And beginning in verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That is what God wants to fill us with. And in fact, these are all words that describe him. They describe his nature. And we'll be looking today yet again, just as he has been the embodiment of, of love and, and joy and peace and patience and so forth, we also know that he has exhibited great kindness and goodness as well. May we be marked as a church family. May we be marked with kindness and goodness. And I know as I begin the message, you hear those words, or maybe even you think of the, the whole series and say, well, that's, that's kind of a sweet thought. You know, that's, that's, that's nice sentimental theme for the summer. But as we dig down in and we peel it back and we really look at what these words mean, it's a, it's a high calling. And it's, it's self-sacrifice. And it's commitment. And it's, it's, a distinctive, it's a distinctive position that we are in to be able to show something different to a world that is not known by the fruit of the Spirit. They're known by verses 19 and following, those works of the flesh. And so here we are as trophies of God's grace, if you will, being set aside into the world to exhibit something unique and different that we are first filled with, that we grow and mature in, and ultimately overflows out of our lives. Let's look at these words. Kindness and goodness really go together. So we're going to look at both of them today. Kindness is, is really an, an attitude, an awareness of how someone else feels. It's considering their feelings, adapting our attitudes, our words, and our behavior accordingly. It's thinking of kindness. Goodness, on the other hand, very, very much related to kindness, but it's a more of an active word. In fact, you could see it uh, that goodness deals primarily with the motives of speech and conduct, lying at the heart of our character, behind all that we say and do. In fact, in, uh, in John MacArthur's commentary on Galatians, he took the two words and he said, kindness is a concern for others 
while goodness is an active kindness. And so maybe you could look at them and say, one is speaking of an attitude while the other is showing an action, kindness and goodness. Again, a lot of, a lot of things that, that, we could, uh, that we could speak of to talk about how they go hand in hand. But unfortunately, in our culture today, these are words that sometimes connote weakness, don't they? You're not going to get ahead on the job. You're not going to get ahead in the world if you're kind, right, or if you're good. There's these other competing values that at times uh, seek to, to lead us into thinking and living differently. But yet, I hope what we'll see today is that these are very powerful, powerful virtues and virtues that have the, the ability to change lives. In fact, to change a community, to change a country. To see them done by the power of the Spirit is not something that speaks of timidity or weakness. In fact, I would contend that oftentimes when someone is rude or brash, that's the easy way, isn't it? Just to, just to speak and to be hot-headed and not to be kind or not to be good, that's, that's really the path of least resistance. It takes a greater maturity. At times it even, even takes the, 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 the ability to, to, to be restrained in order to exhibit kindness and goodness. But again, we've been looking at each of these and saying they are not something that we produce from within ourselves, but that the Holy Spirit, as, as we abide in Christ, His Spirit produces this fruit. And kindness and goodness are two descriptions of what He wants to do in our lives. Well, have we experienced kindness and goodness? We've been singing about it today. We've been praying about it. Let's think of a couple of verses that speak of how we, as followers of Christ, have experienced the kindness and the goodness of God. One that, uh, that came to mind is Titus chapter 3. And as we read this passage, I want you to look, obviously, for the words kindness and goodness, but I want you to see what they're connected to. Let's look at verses 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, new life, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, is that not a beautiful passage of Scripture? Just think of the, the picture there of, of the hope of eternal life, the, the regeneration, the new life that comes because of grace and mercy. What we see here is the words goodness and loving kindness of God moving forth into what the gospel is really all about. So do you see that connection between goodness and kindness with the gospel? Because it's all right there in that passage. It all comes together. And it's out of His mercy, by His grace, that we receive eternal life. So again, a description of God's goodness and kindness. It's also demonstrated 
in the life of Jesus Christ. We could look at a lot of different passages, and there may be some accounts that are coming to mind when, uh, when, I, when I ask you, it was, was Christ someone while in his earthly ministry that was kind? You say, oh yeah, I can think of a lot of, of situations where he encountered people and he demonstrated kindness and he demonstrated goodness. In fact, he is described in Acts chapter 10 this way, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing. Now, this is an interesting verse to me because as we consider the fruit of the Spirit and we we see that we're called to be kind and good and that it's something that the Spirit produces, what is it that Acts 10 is saying that happened in the life of Christ? We see it's the Holy Spirit at work, the power of the Spirit that allows Him, that, 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 uh, that empowered Him to do good, even as He was fully man and as He was fully God. As He was continuing His earthly ministry, He was an example of doing good. Essential to God's nature is that He is good. And because God is good, what He does is good. Go all the way back to the, to the creation account. Go back to Genesis 1, and every time it speaks of what he was creating, what does it say? It says it was good. And after he created man and woman, what does it say? It was very good. And so this is part of God's nature, seen throughout Scripture, that he is good. What he says is good. What he teaches is good. What he commands is good. What he promises is good. All of this is wrapped up in his goodness. It's all connected clearly to his goodness. And so we we don't want to lose sight of the fact that God is a good God, that he has demonstrated it, we have experienced and we have received the goodness that, uh, that only he can provide. Kindness and goodness expressed. Ephesians 4.32 speaks that we have received kindness, we've received goodness, and so that is something that is to be expressed through our lives as well. Look at it with me. It says to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. And doesn't it just make sense that if we've been the recipients that we would also be ones that would express it, that we would share it. And so, so it, it, it really doesn't flow that if, that if we've been forgiven, that we would refuse to forgive. That if we've had God be kind and good to us, that we would withhold kindness and goodness from another. And so this is how the, the, uh, the economy of God works, is that He fills us with His nature. He fills us with what is important to Him, Right? And then from there, we are to to be uh, the example of that in the world that's around us. How do we express kindness? As we said at the very beginning, it it begins with our attitude towards others. Or maybe you could use the word temperament, that one would have a kind, Christ-like temperament, respecting other people, thinking of their feelings, thinking of their needs, and that leads us to goodness. Galatians 6.10, so then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So all of a sudden, the fruit of the Spirit, they become, they become instructive, don't they? They become very practical in the way that we are to relate even to one another 
within the household of faith. And let me ask you, if someone comes in and they are, they are thinking, they are considering the claims of Christ, they are, they, are, they, are, uh, they, they are working through what the gospel means, and we may have several here even today that are, that are contemplating that. What kind of a witness is it to them if they see a body of Christ that is kind, that is, that is good, that is, that is assisting and helping, and this idea of God's loving kindness being seen? Isn't that a powerful statement? Isn't that something that the Lord could use to, to really draw people to His loving kindness and His goodness? What do you think? It is, isn't it? But the other side is also true. If someone walks in and, and there's a fractured, unkind, unloving group of people that are encountering one another, and, and they see it and it looks very similar to what they see out in the world, what is the reaction then? No, thank you. Got enough of that already, right? And so, so it, 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 it even is something that, that has, a, uh, has an impact upon our ability to witness. Jesus always took time, time to be kind and good to those around him. I asked you to think of something in your mind in which he, he, uh, he demonstrated kindness. And I can remember uh, one occasion where there were children that wanted to come near him. And what did the disciples say? Disciples wanted to hold the children back from him, right? Because Jesus needed to spend his time with who? Who they viewed as being the important people, right? Who did Jesus want to spend his time with? He said, let the children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Can you just imagine that picture in your mind of, of our Savior correcting that wrong, inviting the children in and having them right there with him? Just a beautiful picture of his kindness and his goodness. What about the woman that he met at the well? One that, that he, being God, knew of her life, knew of her sin, knew of, of her reputation in the community, and he spent time talking with her. And in fact, she came looking for physical water, but what really happened? He filled her with the water of life, didn't he? The living water. And she was transformed and changed. And he, he, uh, he commended her for the transformation that would be taking place in her life. Again, he's looking at others. His kindness and goodness was centered upon those around him. If he had been only focused upon himself or his own needs, or if we do the same, we miss out on the ways in which we are to be kind and good. A world of self-absorption, of self-centeredness is not a kind and good world. It is one that is, that is rude, one that is, that, is, that is not helpful. And so there's that contrast upon the world in which we live. I don't know if you've uh, heard the name Tim Keller. He's a, a pastor in New York City. He's written a number of books. And uh, I, I came across something this last week where he had the opportunity to speak at a prayer breakfast to members of the British Parliament. Like 140 of them came to this prayer breakfast, and he was the guest speaker. And I saw that headline, and I thought, that's quite, a, quite an opportunity, isn't it? And he had Theresa May, the prime minister, seated next to him and the, the American ambassador to, to Great Britain on his other side. is like, what would a guy say if he's going to have this opportunity? So I watched the message, and it was great. I would, I, in fact, I would commend that to you. It's available online of him, June of, 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 of this year, speaking to this prayer breakfast of members of the British Parliament. His subject was this, what can Christianity 
offer our society in the 21st century. Thinking about the the Western society, what does Christianity offer? And so it was very much like an apologetic type of a message, and it was, it was, it was really, really good. And he began with Matthew 5.13, a very familiar passage. Let's look at it on the screen. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's supposed to be something that is different, right? It has this very unique ability chemically on, on, on what it is to be salt. It is, he goes on to say it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So Jesus is telling his disciples, you are to be the salt of the earth. He's using a metaphor. What does salt do? A couple things. Obviously, it enhances the flavor of food, right? You got to use it in limited quantities. We know that. But nonetheless, Salt indeed enhances flavor. But what's the other thing that salt does? It's a preservative, right? And so what is Jesus telling his disciples? That they are, they are to come into a culture, come into a society, that they are to be distinct, right? Because if, if they're the same as the, as the culture, the salt has lost its saltiness. So they are to be distinct in a way to bring out the best, to make the, the savory flavoring of the culture as appropriate, come to life. But it's also to do what? To preserve the culture from corrupting, from decaying. And of course, within every culture, you see those elements there. And so that's part of the the, the idea of being salt or being light in the community. And as as I heard that message, as I read that passage, I thought, what a beautiful description of kindness and goodness. That when, when, when these are present in a situation, when these are the things that are overflowing from one's life, the difference that it makes is huge. Keller spoke about the need for Christians to be distinct. I think that was really his underlying message to the, to the parliament uh, members is that, that if, if you're trying to make Christians like everybody else, you lose this. You lose this. And that's a message to us as a church. If we want to live like the world and think like the world and, 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 and be like the world, will we be salt? No. We will not be salt. We will not be light. And we live in a culture that is growing in a manner that is increasingly decaying. Would you agree? And so if we follow that decay and we become like that, we lose what God has intended for us to be in, 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 in being salt, in, in preserving, and in, in, uh, in enhancing the world that's around us. So I thought, I thought that was a, a passage that speaks to kindness and goodness. He used a, a great example. He talked about a history professor in the States that wanted to show his students how Western society had developed, how Western culture had developed over the years. And he gave them a thought experiment, okay? And as I, as I heard it, I thought, you know what? Maybe we should take this same thought experiment. Is that okay? Let's, let's try it, okay? Here's, here's the experiment. Imagine that it's late at night and that you are walking down a street, all by yourself, and you encounter another person, an elderly woman holding a purse 
that is filled with money and jewels. You see they're coming, and you have to ask yourself the question. Uh, Well, here's the rest of the, the thought experiment. Number one, she would not be able to resist you. Number two, she would not be able to identify you. And number three, it's not against the law to take her purse. So think about that. What would you do? There's the thought experiment. He asks his class each semester what they would do under these circumstances. Do you take it or not? Yes or no? And I'm going to ask you, do you take it, church? I'm not even going to ask anyone to raise their hand that's thinking yes, okay? (laughs) We'll leave that between you and the Lord. His class, year after year, overwhelmingly says no. No, we're not going to take it. We're not going to take the lady's purse because it's not right. Then he has a follow-up question, and he says, what is your rationale for saying no? Maybe there are three reasons why. You would, and I want you to identify which is yours. So here are the three reasons. A, you don't take the lady's purse because it would, if you're taking from a weak person, you would be a dishonorable person. To pick on a weak person means that you yourself must be what? Weak. You wouldn't respect yourself and no one else would either. That's A. B, you don't take her purse because you're thinking about her. It's her property. She's rightfully earned it. It's her possession. What would it be like for this elderly lady to not have this that she owns? Or what about those who are dependent upon her? And then C might be none of the above. So let me ask you, church, who would, who would say that I said no because of A? All right, what about B? All right, what about C? C, okay. So it looked to me like we had mostly B and then C and none, they would say A. This is what he does with this thought experiment. He identifies the motives based upon the culture. He said A is a self-regarding ethic. It's about me. It's about what people will think about me. It's about me being viewed as weak or dishonorable. And you know what he says this comes from? A shame-honor culture. Is that interesting? So there are cultures around the world and cultures through history that that have a shame-based, shame-honor culture. He says B is not that. It is an other-regarding ethic where the ultimate value is love caring for others, their well-being. And here's the point that he makes. He said that when the pagan Anglo-Saxons met Christian leaders, they were coming out of a shame and honor culture and that that they wouldn't have taken the money because they wouldn't want to be viewed as weak. But when the, the Christian leaders came along, this other regarding ethic of love was what was being promoted. And at first they thought it was crazy, right? Very different to be thinking about the needs of others. Very different to be, to be concerned about someone else's well-being or, or welfare. But this is, the profess- this is the point that the professor is making. He says, regardless to his class, whether or not you are a Christian, regardless whether you believe in God or not, 
you have been shaped by Christian thought. And that's interesting for us because we don't live in a shame-honor culture. We live in one that, 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 that is, regards others. And, and we see that. We see that that, that, that that is even in our own nation something that has developed because the Christians came and they said, it doesn't matter your social class. It doesn't matter uh, where you're coming from. You are to be loved. You are to be cared for. This idea of human rights, every being is of equal dignity and worth. He claims it didn't come up in the Enlightenment, but it came up in the Middle Ages out of Christianity and biblical roots. He gives the example of slavery. He said, in, in, in antiquity, Ancient cultures approved and accepted slavery, but the first person that is known of as as protesting slavery is wrong was Gregory, a bishop in Nyssa, who lived in the 370s. He preached a sermon, and he asked the question. He said, how many obols, which is a currency for the image of God? How many staters, another currency, did you get for selling the God-form human being. He said, Jesus Christ knows that the, that the worth of a, of a human soul can't be exchanged. There's nothing of value to exchange for that. And he says, who can buy a man or sell a man once you realize he's made in the image of God? Now, that was, that was a groundbreaking statement It was very unique in the world at that time that no human being can be sold to another. Keller then quotes uh, a medieval historian by the name of Brian Tierney. And he points out that in the, the Middle Ages, this idea of every human being made in the image of God began to develop into the idea of inalienable human rights. Have you heard that before? For everyone, no matter what race, what class, what social status, doesn't matter. It's the image of God. That, again, was groundbreaking. And then he quotes Martin Luther King Jr. In his sermon, The American Dream, he says, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the imago dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men had something within them that God injected. Every person, a capacity to have fellowship with God. He's unique. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we should never forget this as a nation, that there are no gradations in the image of God. So do you see the case that's being built here for this other-centered, others-centered ethic? That it's based upon people being made in God's image. Then Keller quotes a German philosopher, Jürgen Habermas, who's now in his 90s. He says, the ideals of freedom of conscience, human rights and democracy is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. Some of these people he's quoting, I don't know that they're even believers, but they understand historically what has happened and developed in the Western culture. He even quotes another uh, 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 philosopher who speaks of this modern idea of universal benevolence, helping the poor, helping the hungry. All this idea is something that has grown out of Christian roots. 
So again, Keller is taking the opportunity to demonstrate the influence of the gospel upon a culture, a culture that has embraced human rights, human dignity. Where does that come from? It comes from a Christian understanding that someone is created in the image of God. I took some time to think about how this might have affected other things. I read an article by C. Ben Mitchell called The The Christian Origin of Hospitals. And it's amazing to see how the Christian worldview at the time was saying we need to care for those who are sick. We need to bring them out of superstition and look at really caring for them and their their physical needs. I I, I read about the, the Christian origin of the Red Cross, a Christian businessman with a deep conviction to care for the distressed. The Red Cross today still being one the largest relief organization. And by the way, as a side note, most of the volunteers with the Red Cross or the highest number of volunteers come from, can you guess? Southern Baptist Churches, Disaster Relief Ministry. We, we are very connected in with, uh, with the Red Cross, particularly here in uh, efforts in America. But again, who has this deep conviction to care for the distressed? Even on an international scale, I've seen firsthand when, when we lived in Athens, we were, we were serving and working among, among refugees from the Middle East and from North Africa. Many of them, their religious background was, can you guess? Islam, right? And, and as I looked around the city of Athens, which was one of the main entry points for, for, uh, for, uh, for refugees, do you know who was doing most of the caring for them? Christian ministries. Christian ministries, cooking food, bringing medical teams in, having clothing closets, giving education to, to, to little boys and girls who weren't in school, all of it for the most part. And I heard more than once people coming out of these Muslim background countries saying, where, where are the Muslims to help us? Because there certainly were Muslims living in the city, but you didn't see relief efforts happening. Again, I just go to this, this Christian ethic of putting the needs of others. There's a lot more that we could say about that, but I'm going I'm to keep moving. Let me just ask you this. Do you see how all of this relates to the fruit of the Spirit? Does it make sense? Specifically kindness and goodness, that it's an overflow of what God has put within our hearts? Let me ask you this. If the whole Western society, if you agree with what Keller was saying, has been influenced by the force of Christianity and the emphasis on the value of others, just think about a church and its potential to influence a community. If we allow that same understanding of kindness and goodness to overflow. Again, this is not just a a series on sweetness and sentimentality. This is something that is a roll up our sleeves and, and exhibit kindness and goodness. It's a filling of the Spirit, an outpouring of the Spirit to make an impact for the sake of the gospel. In our culture, even though it has had a Christian influence upon it, I think we would all agree that it is changing at a rapid pace. Just think about all the dialogues that we're having now about right and wrong. Think about all the dialogues and all the the words that we're now having to explain to our children because of the discussions and the dialogues happening within our culture. It is a rapidly decaying culture. If, If the culture, if the country, if our community ever needed the body of Christ to stand up and be distinct and to be salt and light, it is now. 
And yet I'm afraid that if we're not careful, we'll get sucked into that way of thinking because we will, would say, well, isn't it more loving to condone such and such fill in the blank? Isn't it more loving just to accept that than it is to say we're standing on the truth and because we love you, we love you enough to be salt, to be distinct, to have a distinct message from the message that's coming out of our culture. I know I'm running out of time, but let, let, let me wrap this up by giving you one last piece that Keller gave to the parliament. He quoted a philosopher from Canada. In fact, he wrote a book, uh, Charles Taylor, Sources of the Self, The Making of Modern Identity. I've not read the book. I've only read what, what Keller said about him. But he said we have conflicting uh, uh, ideas that we're giving to young people in our culture today. He says that on one hand, we tell them that they are to think about the needs of others, that they are, they are to be involved in social justice and helping the poor and helping the disadvantaged and be involved in efforts to help them, but that's an others-centered perspective. While at the same time, we're telling them, we, not the church, but the culture, that there is no absolute truth. And don't let anybody tell you what's true. You develop and define what's true for you. I'll define what's true for me. It all just happens to work itself out. Do you see the conflict there? How can we, how can we give someone the idea to go and be responsible for others, but not have that structure, that foundation of an other's perspective, an other's ethic? And, and I, I thought that was an excellent point because he says that he sees it unraveling. That if on one hand we're telling people to alleviate suffering and hunger, but then on the other hand we're telling them that moral ideals are subjective, he says we don't have the moral sources to support them. And he asked the question, can we form people anymore in our society who support those ideals, ideals that take self-sacrifice? See the distinction? What he's saying is we have high moral ideals, but we don't have the moral sources to undergird them. You young people have to go work for justice, and yet we don't have that foundation that says why we do this. And here's how he concludes. He says, can we be good for long without God? Without God, can we be good? What will undergird these values if there is no God, if there is no Christian ethic that's the foundation that's what has been the foundation for centuries. But if it evaporates, then what do we have? Interesting point. Something to maybe chew on. Talk. Maybe that can be your lunch conversation today. Think through this. Solve that problem while you're, uh, while you're having lunch. Well, I need to wrap up. The fruit of the Spirit is part of being salt and light in our world. Kindness and goodness are incredibly important parts of our witness and our influence. They have been throughout the ages, and they are so vitally important right here and right now. Let us not neglect them. Not a, not, let us not think of that as weakness, but let us see kindness and goodness as a strength and a power that comes by the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's how it was described of Jesus in Acts 10. Let that be described in us, even as we interact with one another in the church family. John Drescher said it this way. He said, to do good is to see no duty too small to do. 
and to see no task too meager to tackle, to see no person too insignificant to encourage and lift, and to see no person too unimportant to help, to see no feet too unclean to stoop and wash. That's the call. That's the the high calling, the high example that Christ has set for you and for me. But this is where we begin. Not with the good works, not with the goodness and kindness. We begin first with new life. Because otherwise we have a work-centered gospel. We begin as we did in Titus, seeing that salvation comes through grace. Not what we've deserved or earned, but what, what God in His mercy has given and offered to those who will trust in Him. So I don't want us leaving this morning with the idea that we just need to go out and be kind and good because that will be what, what earns us a place in heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. You see, once we receive the mercy and the grace and the new life is put within us, that's when the good works begin. Listen to Ephesians 2. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. But then what happens? After new life, what happens after the new birth? Verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see that progression? And so this morning, as a time of response, there may be many different ways today that we would respond to the word of God. Maybe the Lord has exposed something in our own lives where we have quenched His kindness and goodness flowing through us. Maybe we've dammed it up somehow. We've blocked it. And maybe this is a time to to repent and to submit and to say, God, do a work in my heart that I am kind and I express goodness. But again, it only begins when one has been made new. And so if today you are here and you're considering the claims of Christ, I encourage you to come to Jesus. Come to Him. Allow Him to take you as you are, to forgive you, to make you new, and to begin filling you with this this fruit of the Spirit that we've been spending all summer looking at. He wants that to be within you. So in just a moment, after I pray, we're going to have a a time to sing. The ushers are going to come. They're going to receive the offering. And members of our prayer and encouragement team are going to be over on the side. They're going to be at these tables. And if you have a question about what it means to trust in Christ, you can make your way over during the song or after the song, and you can talk with them. You can pray with them. Maybe maybe you want to talk about what it means to officially be a part of the church or to be baptized. We have a baptism coming up in a couple of weeks. In fact, next Sunday, I'm going to teach a a class about baptism at 9 o'clock next Sunday morning. You're welcome to come. If you're interested in what it means to be baptized, we'll be baptizing on the 22nd of this month. Or maybe today you're here and you're going through something and you just need someone to put their hand on your shoulder and to bow with you and pray specifically about a need, situation taking place in your life. That's what they're there for. So let's pray together. And then as the Lord leads, may each of us respond to him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time to be able to open your word and to give consideration of the high calling that you have placed within us. And we thank you that it's by your spirit and by your empowerment that we can be the people that you have called to be salt and light 
in this world. God, I pray that kindness and goodness would be seen among us, that it would freely flow in our marriages, in our homes, in our, in our workplaces, in schools, and right here among this household of faith. God, may the world around us see it. May they be attracted to it. And may we experience your goodness and kindness so that we can express it to those around us. Father, we thank you for the love that you have displayed by calling us unto yourself. And we pray that even now, in this time of response, that we will, will, be, will be moldable, that we will be shaped by you, and that we can respond as you lead. We pray for the offering that's received. We thank you for the, the tithes and offerings that you have provided and have allowed us to give back to further your work, your gospel work in this community and to the uttermost parts of this world. For we pray this now in Christ's name and all of God's people said, amen. Amen.